Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Stuart Young about his new book, Conceiving the Indian Buddhist Patriarchs in China, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2015 as part of the Kuroda Institute Studies in East Asian Buddhism series. In this book, Young examines Chinese hagiographic representation. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Stuart Young about his new book, Conceiving the Indian Buddhist Patriarchs in China, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2015 as part of the Kuroda Institute Studies in East Asian Buddhism series. In this book, Young examines Chinese hagiographic representations of three Indian Buddhist patriarchs, Ashvagosha, Nagarjuna, and Aryadeva, from the early 5th to late 10th centuries, and explores the role that these representations played in the development of Chinese Buddhism's self-awareness of its own position within Buddhist history, and of its growing confidence that Buddhism could flourish in China despite the distance between the Middle Kingdom and the land of the Buddha. On the one hand, this project traces these three legendary figures as they are portrayed first as exemplars of how to revive the Dharma in a world without a Buddha, then as representatives of a lineage stretching back to Shakyamuni, and finally as scholar types who transmitted the Dharma to China via their exegetical and doctrinal works. More broadly, however, Young uses this transformation as an index of changing views of medieval China's relationship to Shakyamuni's India, and of Chinese Buddhists' confidence in their own ability to realize the Buddhist soteriological path and firmly establish the Indian tradition on Chinese soil. One theme running throughout the book is the way in which these three patriarchs bridge the Sino-Indian divide. This was particularly important for those Chinese Buddhists who were unsettled by the geography geographical and historical distance that separated them from the India of Shakyamuni's time. The Chinese found Ashvagosha, Nagarjuna, and Aryadeva particularly attractive because while their Indian origins lent them authority, they were, like the Chinese who peered down the well of history at them, living in a time without a Buddha, and thus faced a dilemma not so dissimilar from the predicament in which medieval Chinese found themselves. Unlike the Arhats, who experienced Shakyamuni's ministry firsthand, and unlike the celestial bodhisattvas, who were not bound by history, these three Indian patriarchs occupied a temporal position between Shakyamuni's India and medieval China. In addition, as Yang shows, the Chinese attributed qualities to and highlighted aspects of these Indian patriarchs that were in accord with the values of the Chinese literati, Buddhist and otherwise. In so doing, the Chinese rendered the Indian patriarchs familiar and made them into models that Chinese literati could realistically and willingly emulate. This point is related to another theme linking the chapters together, the Chinese Buddhist appropriation of Indian Buddhist and Chinese religious elements so as to claim them as their own. Young notes, however, that even as the patriarchs developed into models to be emulated, they were also transformed into objects of veneration. Besides being scholarly types who sat around writing doctrinal treaties, 
Nagarjuna came to be associated with pure land thought and practice, and even had his own pure land, according to some, and was worshipped for his apotropaic powers and ability to provide this worldly benefits, while Ashvagosha became a silkworm deity and served as a protagonist in myths that provided a Buddhist justification for the killing of silkworms. And in a final chapter, Young shows how Buddhists co-opted Chinese conceptions of sanctity and sainthood so as to show that these qualities that were in reality of Chinese provenance were in fact Indian and Buddhist through and through. Readers will thus learn not only the details, Ash- details of Ashvagosha, Nagarjuna, and Arya Deva's Chinese careers over a five and a half century period, but also the way in which these careers reflected changing Chinese conceptions of Buddhist history and of China's own position within that history. The book will be of particular interest to those researching Chinese perceptions of India, religious aspects of Chinese sericulture, and East Asian conceptions of Buddhist history and transmission. However, addressing broad themes as it does, Young's work will also prove useful to those studying the way in which a tradition negotiates its relationship with its origins when those origins are at great geographical, historical, and cultural remove. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'm with Stuart Young, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Bucknell University, and we're going to be discussing his recent book, Conceiving the Indian Buddhist Patriarchs in China, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2015. Stuart, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks very much, Luke. I'm honored to be uh, be part of the show. No, no, this pleasure's mine. So, um... Uh, as is usual, I wonder if you could just begin by the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, where you're from, and how you came to the study of um, of China and or Buddhism. Sure, sure. Um, well, I'm originally from uh, Southern California. I was uh, born and raised in a small town uh, called South Pasadena. Uh, went to uh, went to college there, also in Southern California, and at uh, Claremont McKenna College. And um, I suppose I would say that's the place where I first. Um, I don't know if really had exposure to Buddhism, but certainly first became interested in it. I, I was uh, I was a philosophy major almost from the start, uh, from my freshman year in college, um, basically because that was all that interested me. Mm. Um, and and so I you know I I started I just took as many philosophy courses as the registrar would allow me and got some pretty broad exposure to a lot of things, you know, especially continental philosophy. Um, I was interested in religious mysticism for one, um, existentialism, and so on. At the time, you know, this was like the uh, mid-90s, and they, they didn't really have there at Claremont, uh, as far as I recall, not any courses at all that were related to Buddhism. Um, I suppose they might have had Chinese language, but at the time I didn't even uh, didn't know any, any, any um, kind of uh, curricular entree into China at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up just kind of working independently with, uh, with the guy who was my, my mentor, a, a professor, you know, an older guy, even at the time, uh, Frederick Sontag, who was at Pomona College. And he, he really was uh, one of the most influential figures in, you know, my kind of early um, attempts to be academic, uh, though, though in philosophy. And um, so he allowed me to do an independent study with him um, about Buddhism and, you know, just reading, reading a bunch of books. I remember, you know, like Zen and the Art of Archery and Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and mm-hmm. Um, some DT Suzuki stuff and 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 whatnot and all all stuff that I basically just found on my own. And in fact, I don't remember how I first got um, uh, you know a, a, a Buddhist book or, or or first heard anything about it because there wasn't any any class. But anyway, I, I got interested in that in that side of things, and uh, those were the philosophies that, that, that as an undergraduate Buddhist philosophy 
that struck me as, um, uh, you know, just mo- most interesting, um, most compelling. Um, and so I, that's what I really wanted to kind of follow up on. And, and I ended up being able to do my undergraduate um, senior thesis with, uh, with uh, Fred Sontag directing it um, on a kind of a comparison of um, uh, medieval Christian mysticism, uh, Neoplatonism, and then some presentations of uh, Zen. I think I was working with maybe uh, Shunri Suzuki mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and Tibetan Buddhism with the Tibet- Tibetan Book of the Dead and some ideals that I thought uh, in that that overlapped with the stuff in Zen and with uh, uh, the other Western uh, traditions. So that's kind of how I first got into Buddhist studies was through that, that work in undergrad as a philosophy major. Um, and then, mm. uh, you know, so I kind of kept, I, I guess I kept it up, except for the, except for the philosophy side, which I've, I haven't. I would not say I've disavowed, but I have. My my work is not philosophical work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Thanks for that. Um, so, how then did you go from that and come eventually to focus specifically on the topic of th- uh, this book? Well, so um, it's it's actually this this topic for this book has really well was I, I suppose finally it's done. It, it was in the works me for almost my entire um, career in Buddhist studies, really. I mean, um, I, I began with it really, uh, well, so it's a longer story than, than I've already given you with my background. Um, but I, uh, after I graduated from college, you know, I was a philosophy major, I didn't get any jobs. And, and so, uh, you know, being interested in Buddhism, I thought the first thing I should do is go to Asia, um, which is what I did after I graduated. I got, I, I just got a job teaching English in South Korea and I moved there and I, I lived in South Korea by myself for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still kind of wanted to get back into academia and I always kind of had aspired to be a professor. And, um, so I, I got back to the States and after a year abroad, and I just started taking courses uh, then in Buddhism uh, at UCLA um, and it's, you know, it's just, a, it was a, not a degree program, but just kind of open enrollment. Anyone in Southern California could just show up and take a class and pay for it by class. And so that's what I did. Hmm. Um, and, I, and that was my first, my, I, I took my first Buddhism class was, uh, you know, formal Buddhism class was with James Ben hmm. at UCLA yeah. when, you know, he was a grad student there finishing his PhD. And, um, I, this was probably like, uh, I don't know, 2000 or I mean, maybe 1999 or eight or something. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, so, and then James, James has, um, you know, I should take this opportunity to say that James has certainly been the most influential person in, in my development as a scholar in Buddhist studies. He, uh, he's really been my greatest mentor and friend uh, for, you know, coming, up, coming near on two decades now, hmm. um, reading everything I've written and, and just being um, you know, the, the most amazing um, friend and advisor, really, that anyone could hope for. I, I have nothing but uh, the greatest respect for James. Um, well, anyway, so the story the story goes on. I, I so I took I started taking classes there at, at UCLA with with James, and I had a class with uh, David Scaberg, which was great on uh, Chinese thought, philosophy, and but this so this gets around to how I got into this project. Uh, another course that I took there was with Greg Gregory Chopin. Yeah, um, and uh, and so that's where I got into. Uh, I started working on Nargajan. I, I just somehow I randomly in in that class with Greg Chopin ran across. Um, you know, I guess it was Nargajanakonda, um, you know, in the kind of Indian archaeological context. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I figured, well, you know, here I am with this philosophy background. I'm interested in philosophy. So if I'm getting into Buddhism, I should study Nargajana. You know, he's the greatest Buddhist philosopher ever, <laughs> you know, as far as everyone um, typically represents him. Yes. Um, 
but then so, you know, I'm interested in agrogenous sort of from the philosophical side with my background undergraduate. And then I, I'm, I'm in this class with, with Greg Chopin looking at um, archaeological evidence from India. And, and that's where the first kind of, well, for my first sort of entree into this started with this discrepancy between the pro- predominance of Nargajana in literature, mm-hmm. uh, in, in philosophical writings and so on, uh, but then the absolute absence, the complete absence of any reference to Nargajana in all of these um, donative inscriptions around Nargajanakonda and Namaravati and other um, Indian sites that we were working on in this class with uh, Greg Chopin. And so that was my first, and, and so I'm, I'm looking at all, I start getting into all these materials about Nargajana, and that's that's really where I, uh, you know, where I started this whole pro- whole project and and my career in Buddhist studies was studying Nargajana. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, so then this led me to the the hagiographies of Nargajana, which exist um, actually predominantly in Chinese Chinese language. Of course, at that time, I'm reading everything in English translation. Yeah. Um, but but that's when it it it, um, it struck me that. Um, you know, there's all these hagiographic accounts about Nargajana that, that uh, were produced in China. And all of the scholarship that I'm reading out there about Nargajana is using all of these Chinese hagiographic materials. And all of it, all of the scholarship is, is doing so primarily in an effort to locate Nargajana in, in the Indian context, in Indian history, Indian philosophy, uh, and so on. And uh, that, that kind of struck me at the outset as a as a notable contradiction methodologically, why are we using these Chinese sources to study India? <laughs> and and that was sort of the the seed that that begat the whole book, you know, which was um, let, let's look at these same Chinese sources that everyone's long used to situate uh, Nargajana in ancient India. Well, why don't we look at these Chinese sources to ask and then try to answer questions about what they meant to the Chinese people who were, um, you know, I don't know if authoring them, but at least circulating them. Um, you know, th- we had this is the, the most uh, abundant body of hagiographic literature about Nargajana in any Buddhist context. It's the earliest by centuries in any Buddhist context. So it just seemed to me to be the most straightforward kind of proposition to start examining those hagiographic sources in the context in which they first circulated in medieval China. Yes. Uh, so then that, that led to a, a master's thesis. Uh, it's, I, I went on and got a master's degree at, at uh, SOAS in the University of London, and yeah. a master's thesis was that. It was looking at Nargajana specifically and, and, and trying to tease out some of the implications of those Chinese sources in their Chinese uh, settings. Um, and then that, you know, then this goes on to then become the, uh, you know, I followed along with it in, for the Ph.D. dissertation at, at Princeton with, uh, with, with Buzzy Tizer then, who was... Um, you know, kind of the next really influential um, person for me in developing all this stuff and, you know, um, taking courses with Buzzy and working together with him and developing this into a really, uh, you know, really a feasible uh, PhD research topic and then broadening it to include lots of other aspects and then especially to, to include um, uh, Gosha and Deva with Nargajana, given that these come to be seen as kind of a triad in, in, in a lot of the, the medieval Chinese sources that I was looking at. I see. Um, so that's a you know long story. Long story that's still long. Uh, that's that's basically how I got into this project, and it's carried me all the way through to uh, you know its publication this year. Okay. Wow. So yeah. So that. Um, okay. So um, you, now in this book, or in, in in introduction to the book, you lay out the um, theoretical groundwork upon which the subsequent six chapters rest, and uh, introduces to the book's central themes. Uh, we'll get into more detail about uh, this when we discuss the individual chapters, but I just wanted to begin with a few of those central themes. 
Um, first, I just want to make it clear to listeners that you're focusing on the hagiographic imagery of, th- of the three Indian patriarchs as, as it existed and functioned in Chinese religion and culture between the early 5th and late 10th centuries. Uh, now, as you mentioned, these three patriarchs are Ashvagosha, the 2nd century author of the Buddha Charita and uh, putative author of the Awakening of Faith, um, though, of course, it seems he's not, uh, Nagarjuna, and then Arya Deva. Um, now, you've already mentioned how your uh, how your monograph here differs from um, previous uh, scholarship, namely that you're looking at sort of the uh, Chinese images of these three rather than looking at um, uh, their sort of tr- using Chinese works to place them in a sort of Indian doctrinal intellectual historical right. context. Right. But um, so but uh, before we get into the uh, chapters, uh, I just want to mention that in the introduction, one aspect of the book that you discuss is your approach to religious biography or hagiography. And you describe two standard ways of approaching uh, religious hagiography, and you find both problematic. So I was wondering if you could just tell us what these two approaches are, why they're problematic, and um, how you want to depart from that. Right. So, yeah, I mean, traditionally we have um, the approaches to hagiography whereby you see them as a uh, an amalgam of, of a real historical event that occurred, um, and then, uh, you know, the mythic accretions that build up over time upon that historical event, those mythic accretions are added for various didactic purposes, tradi- you know, as, as traditionally understood. And then mm-hmm. so the approach is to, you know, to try to, to, to peel back those layers of accreted myth um, such that we can recover the, the actual historical events that occurred on this sort of positivist historicist project. And that's the, you know, one primary use, at least traditionally, I think, though no one really tries to do this so much anymore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one side of that equation then is, yeah, trying to get rid of that myth to see what the real historical reality is underlying it. Right. And then the other side of that coin is, well, to, you know, let's look at the myth then as a product of a particular particular kind of, you know, social, cultural, religious context and using the myths then to tease out the, 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 the realities of that, of that context. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I guess my, what, what my, my work is trying to do is just basically transcend this myth history dichotomy really, and, and try not to focus on, um, you know, what, what is historical, what is mythic or what is true and what is false. Um, you know, what is a pre-narrative historical event and what is later narrative accretion and those, all those dichotomies seem to me to be false and, and not, you know, not to me, of course, I'm, I'm drawing on a, on now a fairly long tradition of scholarship on hagiography, you know, mm-hmm. at least in the past past decade or probably, probably past couple of decades, um, that has similarly decried this false dichotomy. Uh, and in fact, here really, you know, my my uh, my my greatest influence is certainly the work recent work of Rob Campany, um, who who was also very kind to to review um, an earlier version of, of my manuscript, my book. Uh, but Rob's Rob's work is is just you know to me this is still the the definitive statement about uh, about hagiography um, as a as a record of social discourses mm-hmm. uh, by which you know so this is a you know his way which is a nice way of again transcending this myth history dichotomy this false dichotomy that's been imposed upon the genre mm-hmm. uh, so I'm really just trying I'm just trying to kind of follow in Rob's footsteps really in that regard I've I've added the a, um, a little touch, I suppose, of uh, incorporating uh, Jonathan Lyons' uh, discussion of the uh, 
uh, the, the, the ancient model of the exemplum, um, which you know I, I won't describe in too much depth now, except to say that it's uh, it's it's there in the book. It, it's um, it's basically trying to do the same thing that that uh, Rob Campany does in, in that uh, it's treating uh, treating hagiography as a record of a, of a kind of a social discourse um, and using it using hagiography then to get at the contours of this social discourse. Mm. Um, and and um, it, 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 in my particular case, I think this discourse revolves largely around uh, what Buddhist sainthood was in medieval China, uh, particularly in regard to uh, its uh, perceived ancient Indian precedents, given that these are all Indian masters that are um, being memorialized in these texts. Yeah. So, so that's kind of one, one um, uh, I guess, uh, move I try to make about hagiography is as treating it as exemplum, which, again, I think follows closely along the lines of Rob Campany's work is, uh, on hagiography as a, as a record of social discourse. Um, a couple other moves I try to make concerning hagiography that uh, are a little bit different uh, than, than what Rob does. I mean, first of all, because I'm dealing with um, what are seen to be Indian sources, um, I don't try to weigh in really on whether they are Indian sources. We don't have any evidence to know. Yeah. Um, you know, so at the Chinese sources we've got, you know, maybe they circulated in India, maybe they were invented in China. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but in any event, because they're seen to be from India in China, and that's, that's pretty widespread. I mean, I don't think anyone's questioning typically the authenticity, the Indian authenticity. I guess, just to be clear, the Chinese are typically not questioning the Indian authenticity of these texts. They are taking them as Indian accounts. Yes. Um, and so, therefore, I, I feel like um, they need to be treated a little bit differently uh, in, as, in terms of how we interpret the genre in the Chinese context, right? I mean, these are seen to be Indian texts, in China, therefore, for the Chinese, they're not expected to share the same kind of conventions as, uh, as all. You know, there's, there's, of course, many, many other other genres of uh, you know native Chinese genres of hagiography, um, you know, built on imperial dynastic histories and such, uh, which which Campy describes a lot in his his book on the the uh, the Shen Shen Zhuan, the uh, traditions of the transcendence. Um, but because these are seen as Indian, I feel like they need to be treated a little bit differently from our the standpoint of our analysis, and I try to make that move then. To, um, to look at uh, my particular hagiographic sources as unique amongst hagiographic sources in China, given that their focus is on integrating, validly integrating Indian models of Buddhist sainthood into a Chinese context. And that, I think, makes them a little bit different uh, than, than native Chinese genres of hagiography. Um, and then the last move I'm trying to make um, about hagiography uh, that I think... Um, you know, it's relatively new. I don't know if that I've, that I've seen this discussion uh, made elsewhere, but that hagiography really isn't um, the kind of, uh, or it often isn't the kind of discrete genre of religious literature that it's uh, often made out to be. I mean, you know, if you were to come up with a, a, a um, you know, thumbnail sketch definition of what hagiography is, it's the written biographies of saints. Mm-hmm. So far, so good, and that's, yeah, I don't mean to say that that's wrong, but I, but I also want to emphasize in the book that um, hagiography really ties in with all other genres of Buddhist literature as well, uh, with sutra, shastra, um, ritual manuals, there are degrees to which hagiographic representations and doctrinal discussions and ritual representations and uses all really clearly overlap. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kind of illustrate how hagiography really sort of fit into all of these other genres and all these other, uh, I guess, modes of discourse and practice uh, amongst Buddhists. Um, so. Th- 
anyway, that's that's sort of the, the things I'm trying to say about hagiography in the book. Great, thanks. Um, so, um, so the book comprises six chapters, and the uh, first three chapters trace the trans. Uh, well, they proceed chronologically, uh, tracing the transformation of these three Indian um, patriarchs. Uh, I w- so, beginning with the first chapter, um, here you turn to the earliest uh, textual depictions of Ashvagosha, Nagarjuna, and Arya Deva, and also to early Chinese understandings of what happened to Buddhism in India after the death of the Buddha. Um, and one of the problems you uh, you mentioned here that early Chinese Buddhists faced was how to go about following the Buddhist path in the absence of a Buddha. Um, so. Here you argue that Chinese ecclesiastics, and you focus on three uh, Chinese exegetes in particular, saw these Indian patriarchs as being able to revive the Dharma in the face of seemingly inevitable decline. Um, and you argue that these Chinese monks, that uh, that these Chinese monks believe that the Indian patriarchs did this, were able to do this through engaging in activities that happened to be those highly valued by Chinese literati of the time. So there's right, some sort right. of retrospective um, uh, sort of projection going on here. Um, now that's sort of my, uh, um, and, 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 and so doing that, they sort of created these models that they could actually realistically follow themselves. But that's my inarticulate summary of the chapter's argument. Um, I was wondering if you could take us through, through this beginning with the problem of Buddha's absence um, and then moving on to the way in which these three Indian patriarchs presented um, themselves as a possible solution to the problem of medieval Chinese monks' uh, geographical and historical distance from ancient India, and then finally just mention some of the uh, qualities of Chinese literati that Chinese monks attributed to these three Indian uh, patriarchs. Right, right. Well, I mean, this, I, I guess this was one of my, uh, my, my answers early on, um, you know, as I'm imagining this project in the dissertation stages and so on, of why why are these particular patriarchs so important? You know, why why are they why are they so widely represented? Why are they all over the place in in Chinese Buddhist sources? Um, and and in this chapter, I think the, the the answer to this largely comes to be that well, it's because there's so much like um, the Chinese authors who are promoting them. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, like, uh, you know, for one, in this, in this, as you mentioned, this, this issue of uh, kind of this Dharmic historical moment, um, you know, we're, we're, we're far removed from the Buddha. Um, the Dharma is uh, on the decline. There's all kinds of horrible things happening all around us that we can readily observe. Um, and, and we're trying to uphold the Dharma at a remove um, from the epicenter of, of enlightenment and at a remove from India. And, and, you know, how do we go about doing this? And this, this becomes a, you know, it seems to be a, a fairly uh, common concern expressed amongst, um, you know, early fifth century Chinese Buddhists and even earlier, I, I guess in the book uh, I mentioned from the time of uh, Dao An, the fourth century seems to come to the fore, but you know, this issue of like how to maintain fidelity to uh, original, pure, true Buddhism, um, when we're so far away from the Buddha. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, this strikes me as one reason why this particular triad of patriarchs um, at that time, so early 5th century, right, this is the time when Kumarajila arrives in China, uh, one reason why these particular Indian patriarchs were, seemed, to be, seemed to offer such compelling examples for, um, for, for Chinese adepts of the time. Because these Indian patriarchs lived in a very similar kind of um, 
that they had a very similar kind of plight. Um, you know, they're, they're centuries removed as, as these early hagiographic statements um, make clear. Mm-hmm. The Indian patriarchs themselves are centuries removed from the Buddha at a time when his teachings are fallen into decay. And um, so, you know, how, how do, what do they do in that circumstance? How do they go about riding the ship? Um, and, and this is, uh, you know, again, why I think they, they, they seem to be so compelling for Chinese Buddhists at the time who see themselves as in very similar circumstances. Um, and then, yeah, right, so then how do they go about riding the ship? Well, you know, they, they, they do so in these early, so this is the, the, sort of the earliest strata of the hagiographic, the Chinese hagiographic literature about these Indian figures. Is it, it appears almost entirely in uh, prefaces um, to the works that were translated by Kumarajiva, the works of uh, Nargajanash, Pravosha, Rayadeva. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the earliest strata... All, all depicts the Indian patriarchs, you know, these little, these little preface biographical accounts. You know, the, the patriarchs are saving the world when it's about to collapse by writing texts, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, by, you know, doctrinal authorship, um, a certain degree of uh, kind of remove, like, um, you know, kind of hermetic uh, remove from worldly affairs mm. um, through, through oral debate, through public oral debate against heretical masters. Yeah. Um, and, and by promoting uh, methods of uh, seated contemplation meditation. Um, and so these are, the, these are like the, you know, the, the sort of the, the repertoire of practices that are, that are just always associated with the patriarchs in these early Chinese sources. Um, and then so it strikes me, okay, well, uh, yeah, well, these, these prefaces are written by um, the most... Uh, the, the the elite of the elite of, of the Chinese uh, monastic community of the time, um, you know, these are um, elite literati scholars who are as well versed as anyone in all of the traditional Chinese uh, Chinese literature and in in Buddhist literature as trans, transmitted uh, from by, by Kumara Jiva and for you know a couple of centuries before him. Um, so it strikes me that you know they're presenting images of these indian patriarchs in in a historical context which is very much like their own mm-hmm. and performing practices which are very much like those practices esteemed by figures like uh sun ray sun jiao and hui yuan um you know the disciples of of kumara jiva yes um, so you know it, it look, you begin to look more and more like um you know a figure like uh sun ray is basically presenting himself in 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 uh, ancient india uh, as you know, as equivalent to a figure like Nargajana, saving the world when it's about to collapse by writing treatises, by mm. performing you know the, the 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 kind of Buddhist practice that a scholar performs. I see. Um, so, so, so and then, but then I guess the next step of the analysis, um, which I thought maybe was useful, was that um, it it then it, what does it do? I mean, it makes it makes that kind of um, scholarly model, um, you know, kind of like kind of spiritual scholarship, um, which wasn't just a Buddhist, you know, these, these kind of preoccupations that I mentioned are not just Buddhist at the time in China. Of course, they're shared by, um, you know, all religious adepts across traditions. Um, so in this chapter, I, I kind of try to emphasize the, the competition, competitive aspect um, between figures like uh, Sung Rei and Sung Jiao, these elite literati Buddhist masters, uh, competition between them and and other Chinese traditions of kind of uh, scholarly uh, religiosity, uh, like uh, like Xuan Shui, uh, study of the profound uh, adepts of the time, or practitioners of Qingtan, or uh, a, a pure conversation, you know, which would incorporate Taoist classics and 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 other kind of native Chinese religious traditions. 
Um, so I spent, so I'm seeing, you know, the, these Buddhist authors basically projecting all of the uh, most important practices of the Chinese literati religious elite. They're projecting all of these practices back into ancient India. And so, you know, I think one way to interpret this might be, um, you know, that therefore they're, um, you know, expressly working to uh, Indianize and therefore Buddhize practices like public debate, treatise authorship, meditation, and hermetism, um, mm-hmm. um, and therefore kind of making these things Buddhist, making them th- making these things Indian, and therefore claiming kind of a certain sovereignty over those practices, uh, you know, then claiming themselves as the representatives of Buddhism, as the sort of the rightful uh, champions of those practices, the rightful users of public debate. So anyone who's doing public debate, not for the purpose of propagating Buddhism, is just spinning their wheels, and only really works and is only really effective and right if, uh, if it's done in the service of the Buddhist truth, because, of course, it has its ancient Indian heritage, as demonstrated by Ashtagosha, Nargajna, and Narayadeva. Yes. That might be kind of, kind of a convoluted way to put the argument, but that, that's, the, right. that's um, how, how, I, how I see kind of India coming into play here and being used to um, legitimize, um, authorize Buddhist practitioners above and against other Chinese religious traditions um, in, in this kind of competitive religious environment. Which leads us into a point you make at the end of the chapter, but which is extremely important for the entire book and which is uh, central to uh, many of your arguments, which is that um, the Indianness of these three was both de-emphasized and emphasized. So um, what you just said slightly uh, uh, explains that, but could you just uh, uh, more pointedly um, emphasize why it was important that they were both Indian and yet not too Indian? Yeah, so right, you, you would, not too Indian, I guess, to start with that side of it. Um, you know, they are, uh, as I see them, intended to be exemplars, uh, intended to be models of emulation uh, at this point. Um, and so I, I suppose that from that standpoint, from, you know, pers- perspective of a figure like Hui Yuan, uh, what was more important is what they shared. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, is the, that is the Indian patriarchs and their Chinese proponents. And what they shared was this this uh, a temporal uh, remove from the Buddha. Um, so that from that standpoint, then what, it wasn't so important that the Indian, the, I guess, the Sino-Indian divide there wasn't wasn't as crucial. Um, what was more important to emphasize was the fact that they shared uh, a plight. Their their plights were accordant across that Sino-Indian divide of being, um, you know, being removed in time from the the uh, the epicenter. You know, when when Buddhism flourished. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that standpoint, it seemed to be kind of downplayed that that, Indi- that Indianness. Um, but on, on the other hand, at the same time, um, they were clearly in their hagiographic accounts situated in India. They're called Indian masters. I mean, still clearly they are Indian. Um, and I and I then I then I think that well that that served a cer- certain kind of function. That Indianness, um, you know, provides them with a certain cachet. It provides them with authority. Uh, and then again, the next step of the argument, um, which I think is you know somewhat somewhat different than what I've heard elsewhere anyway, but that, that Indian identity serves as a means by which uh, Chinese Buddhists can then make the practices that they champion, which are also shared across all Chinese religious, religious traditions. They can make those practices quintessentially Buddhist and Indian, um, and kind of use that Indian identity to make things that otherwise would have been seen as traditional Chinese mm-hmm. to, make those, to make those things Indian. 
yes. to kind of Buddhistize them and therefore claim a kind of sovereignty over them. Mm. Great. Um, so, so there, so, um, so the works that you uh, discuss in in chapter one all depict these three Indian patriarchs as prevailing and saving the Dharma despite the uh, sorry state of the world in which they find themselves. And uh, another thing you point out is that in these depictions, they're all sort of uh, self made men of sorts, and that they single handedly revive a Dharma in decline. Right. Um, and that's obviously one of the aspects that. Uh, makes these, you know, later Chinese sort of be able to um, identify with them because they're both sort of living in a world without a Buddha. Uh, right. Now, in Chapter 2, you turn to a subsequent development in which uh, Ashvagosha, Nagarjuna, and Aryadeva are portrayed instead as standing in a lineage of patriarchs that stretches back to Shakyamuni and through which the teachings have been transmitted without any sort of decline. Uh, right. Now, this is a very uh, rich chapter and uh, it's not easily easy to summarize, and I won't try, so listeners will have to read it themselves in order to appreciate the complexity of your argument, the developments that you discuss, um, as well as to read your own analyses of the primary sources. But I want to begin here with the, I just want to kind of go over the two main primary sources for this chapter. The first is the 5th or 6th century Dharma treasury transmission, um, and the other is the 6th century, I believe, uh, cave of uh, great perduring saints. Um, and in your study, these two primary sources represent two stages in the development, not only of Chinese understandings of the Indian patriarchs, but also of China's relationship to Shakyamuni's India and Chinese ideas about the possibility of following the Buddhist path in a world without a Buddha. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to begin with the first one, the Dharma Treasury of Transmission, which is central not only to this chapter, but also to the to uh, other aspects of your book. Um, so what is it? Um, and how does its description of Indian lineages uh, differ from previous descriptions, and what's its role in your larger argument? Right. So, so the yeah, the Dharma Treasury Transmission. It's the Fu Fa Zhang Zhuan Chinese text uh, composed probably in China, though it, it does claim to be uh, uh, based on an Indian. It, various versions of it, in some ways, claim to be based on earlier uh, Indian sources. Claims to be a translation, and so on. Um, and it basically recounts the um, uh, the uh, a lineage of of the Buddha Dharma from uh, Shakyamuni, you know, through Mahakashipa and the various patriarchs on down the line, twenty four of them, uh, or twenty three, twenty four, depending on versions and so on. Uh, and it includes um, the uh, the three that that uh, you know that are, I'm focusing on in the study and uh, that that Kumarajiva had focused on from a century before. Um, and then, but then it, uh, what's unique about this text, what's important about this text, why it's, why it's garnered so much attention, well, one reason why is that um, it kills the lineage. <laughs> uh, so this is, the, uh, you know, this is the chapter of Title 2, or chap, uh, Title of Chapter 2 in my book, uh, An Indian Lineage Severed. Um, it, it, uh, the, the text concludes, well, it doesn't quite conclude, but it, it, it uh, depicts the severance of this Dharma lineage with the last patriarch, Bhikshu Sima. Uh, at the hands of an unsympathetic king um, who cuts his head off in, ca- in Kashmir. Yeah, in ca- right in Kashmir, and that's the uh, that's the end of the lineage. Um, and so uh, there's there's various ways in which this has been interpreted. Um, you know, it's it's about imperial persecution. Um, of course, it's very foreboding and apocalyptic. Uh, of course, because you know the lineage is dead, and then it, it, it the text will go on to say how. You know, we're all screwed, and the, the, there's no more saints, and the Dharma's going to die. 
Um, but then what's interesting about this text is, is, is then how it uh, eventually does finally include, uh, conclude, <laughs> which is to go on to say, after it's killed off the last patriarch and said how the Dharma is going to die, then it goes on to say, well, hey, uh, you know, all you really need to do is work hard and everything will be okay. Um, the Dharma will continue to thrive if everyone, um, you know, uh, picks themselves up by their bootstraps and, and really bears down and perseveres and propagates the Dharma. We'll all be okay. Um, so that's so this this kind of conflicting agendas is uh, has been a, a topic of some conversation in the scholarship, and uh, you know Elizabeth Morrison has dealt with it um, uh, very well, and and Wendy Adamek, um, a couple of the scholars I've been kind of discussing this with and writing and elsewhere. Um, I guess what so I guess what I'm trying to say about it a few things, um, you know, one that it's it's really actually not as foreboding um, as it as it might seem there with the end uh, talking about the, uh, the the decline of the Dharma and the patriarchate being severed and uh, in that way it really fits in with um, many other Buddhist uh, eschatological writings of its time. It's really very akin to a lot of other sources of that genre. Uh, the Chandragarbha Sutra, Chinese versions of the Chandragarbha Sutra, the Mahamaya Sutra, uh, which are produced in a similar time. And, um, and so it really fits more into that context of, um, of early medieval Chinese uh, Buddhist eschatology um, than it does with uh, later Buddhist lineage histories in the Chan and the Tiantai traditions, which draw on it heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, uh, and I argue in this chapter that it, by, by doing so, really what they're doing is creating completely different kinds of texts. You know, a Chan lineage history that traces the, the, the transmission of the Dharma from Shakyamuni down to, you know, Huynang or whoever, that's a very different kind of text than what the, um, the, the Dharma treasury transmission, uh, as I argue, was intended to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it wasn't intended to legitimize local, um, local authorities by connecting them genealogically with the Buddha. Um, so, you know, so one thing I, I argue that um, I, I think is somewhat unique is that... Uh, well, what, you know, what it was perhaps intending to do was, was to instantiate a kind of a Lotus Sutra soteriology of absence, mm. uh, you know, which is to say, you know, what the, the Lotus Sutra, you know, kind of goes, offers its explanation as to why the Buddha pretended to be gone, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and, and the idea is basically, well, if, if um, you know, self-reliance, if the, if the Buddha isn't here to pick you up all the time, you learn how to pick yourself up. Mm. Um, and, and, I, and I feel like the Dharma Treasury Transmission tries to, tries to make a similar move. Um, the absence of the Indian patriarchs will be your salvation, not their continuing presence. So, right? so this is this is that's the idea of the soteriology of absence. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I presented on this at a conference in Taiwan uh, uh, last summer, and Bob Sharp was my respondent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I should also give props to Bob here while I'm talking. He, he's been a, um, a, a more distant, but also a great influence on on my work. In the few times that I've talked to him, he's always been very helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in this case, he, he was um, um, less amenable to the idea of the Lotus Sutra soteriology being central to the Dharma treasury transmission, largely because, of course, in the Lotus Sutra, the Buddha never really leaves. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then, uh, which is, which is a, you know, a point well taken. And, and I guess, um, so what I see happening, and then this, this ties into the next source and, um, that, you, that you brought up, which is central to this chapter, and this is the Cave of Great Perduring Saints, Daju Sheng Ku. Uh, which uh, is completed in the year 589, uh, when the uh, the Sui Dynasty it's, it's got imperial Sui Sui imperial patronage, uh, and this is the year that the that the Sui Dynasty finally unifies uh, southern southern China, the, the last uh, of the northern and southern dynasties, the Chen Dynasty, 
uh, at this time. And, and you know, this, this cave is constructed. Uh, you know, we can talk more, uh, if you like, about what, how, what I'm making of the cave uh, in that respect. But what, it, getting back to this lotus sutra soteriology idea, I think what the cave also does is brings those patriarchs back uh, in a similar way to, um, uh, maybe a more similar way to how the Lotus Sutra both um, sort of um, promotes the that so that idea of that soteriology of absence and the upaya of the Buddha's nirvana, combining that then with his eternal presence, mm. um, and I, then I kind of see the, the the Dharma treasure transmission and the cave in which it's uh, carved as then combining to form a similar kind of dynamic as to how the Indian patriarchs are perceived. So here you talk about the um, in, in in the cave, and specifically it's a stele that depicts the twenty four Indian patriarchs within the cave or at the entrance to the cave. I guess um, right. Uh, you argue that this sort of presents them as um, being imminent. Yeah, that's um, this is it's been a tricky part of my argument to develop. Um, I, the, the, uh, the listeners might be interested to know, um, and, well, and you too, of course. Um, but the, uh, this was one of the major sticking points with the, uh, my readers for, uh, the press for, for, uh, for, uh, Kuroda and Hawaii. Uh-huh. Um, I, I suppose maybe sticking point is too strong a, a way to put it. They, they were, they were, they were very positive overall about the book, but this is one area of the argument that, um, I had to work on more. Um, mm-hmm. you know what, I was, and that's to say that they, they were, they were curious, um, maybe even as far as skeptical and disbelieving <laughs> of my ideas, um, that they were, that the patriarchs were actually seen as imminent mm-hmm. in this case. Right. Okay. Um, well, 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 in the interest of time, we'll go on, but I should mention to, um, listeners that, uh, if you, uh, get your hands on the book, that's, it's, 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 um, I mean, it did come off to me as a, uh, Slight as one of the slightly more speculative aspects of the book, but I it was a very rich description of the cave and how the whole sort of cave works as a sort of whole with uh, these uh, different components that uh, well, represent yeah. different sort of um, messages about you know Buddhism and Buddhist soteriology. Yeah, thanks, and, and, and you're and you're right. It is speculative, and that and that's been my um, my response to uh, you know in the revisions. Then in response to the readers, I try to emphasize more that that speculative nature of the argument because yeah, I, I don't know really what the, what the Steely was doing there. And, and, and that's been part of, you know, part of my thinking for, you know, for a couple of years about this is why is that Steely in there and what's it doing? Yes. Then I'm trying to pause it potentially anyway. And again, this is speculation, but yeah. you know, maybe it was used in some kind of a, of a, of a ritual program in the cave. Some evidence, some evidence seems to indicate that, but anyway, yeah, in the interest of time, we can, we can move forward yeah. if you like. Well, there, uh, you know, plenty of parts of the book that, aren't speculative at all, so I think you're probably allowed uh, <laughs> a speculative part, too. Anyway, but um, so going on, so the last, uh, chapter three is sort of the last of the first of this three-chapter section. Well, you don't set it up as a section, but I kind of see it as a section where you uh, trace the development of these um, three patriarchs, and here you continue with the, uh, you talk about the uh localization of these Indian patriarchs within a larger trend that you describe as a uh, an effort to redefine China as the epicenter of Buddhist enlightenment. Um, right. And in this chapter, you focus on exegetical works from the 7th to 9th centuries 
um, that depict the Indian patriarchs transmitting Buddhism not through Vinaya and not through master-disciple lineages, as he discussed in Chapter 2, but rather through the composition of doctrinal treaties. And you, um, so I was wondering if you could just discuss the shift whereby the Chinese began to see China as a place of soteriological potential rather than a backwater. Um, and also, could you also address the shift um, whereby Chinese commentators of the 6th to 8th centuries came to emphasize the three Indian patriarchs as exegetes who transmitted Buddhism through doctrine and cheating? Uh, treaties, um, and I should mention, and you mentioned this in the book that this is the sort of vi- uh, this is the image of these three that has come down to us even today is more of these sort of uh, doctrinally focused uh, exegetes, uh, right, whereas right. the other aspects of them, Ashvagosha is a silkworm deity, for example, many of these things, even though they're very prevalent in China, you know, that image hasn't been passed down in the same way. Right, right, yeah, so. Um, you know, it's a trend that, that really begins with Kumarajiva, um, you know, and, the, and the, the sources discussed in the in the first chapter of the book, whereby these these patriarchs are are presented predominantly as uh, doctrinal authors and scholars, and then this is the, um, you know, it's it's really taken up and and um, developed uh, then in the Sui and the Tang period by figures like Tizong and and Wanding, um, especially if yeah that 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 these figures are. First and foremost, doctrinal authors, and of course, you know, you have the the the, the Chinese monks um, who are presenting these images themselves are doctrinal authors. So it makes sense that they would try to emphasize the, these particular aspects of the patriarchs' careers and achievements over others. Um, and then, of course, you have this. This is the the you know, the, like the writings of the Jizang, for example, are, are then picked up in in uh, later Japanese Buddhist traditions and in Japanese scholarship. Um, all of which have come to really influence uh, Western scholarship um, on these on these figures, and so therefore that's I guess the predominant mode of uh, or the you know predominant representation of of these characters that's come down to us today through all those channels. You know, really beginning with Kumarajiva's disciples, but then I think especially Jizang, um is very influential in the Japanese tradition and in and in China in his own time, and is a very prolific author and really champions uh, these patriarchs. As um, as as models of um, of of, a, of enlightenment um, through through scholarship, mm-hmm. um, I guess. The, so stepping back a little bit, then it, the context in which then I situate these these writings, you know, of a Jitong or a Guangdong, yeah, it's right, is is um, in a in an imperial Chinese context, and I think I suppose that's where uh, typically these kinds of analyses begin, right? Where whereby you know, why did China come to see itself as a center of civilization rather than a hinterland relative to India? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, maybe maybe the the place to begin with answering that question is is at the imperial level. You know, you have the reunification of China with the Sui and the Tang, and you know, very very powerful central dynasties established, um, and and you know, some then more of a, uh, of a of a confidence in Chinese civilization, um, at least relative to the six dynasties period preceding, um, and 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 then in in the writings of imperial. Um, Sponsors as well, you see these Indian Indian patriarchs, these particular Indian patriarchs, uh, arising and being being represented. Um, let's see. Where, where, remind me with the rest of your question. Where else should I go with this? <laughs> right. Well, um, I mean, I I, I guess um, I don't think we've. You, I mean, you give um, three specific uh, examples of how these uh, Indian patriarchs were presented as exegetes, and I don't think listeners will have to go read the chapter for themselves. Um, 
to get the details there, but I mean, could you speak more broadly to how these portrayals as of these Indian patriarchs as, uh, you know, not as, uh, necessarily spell work, uh, you know, um, people in possession of apotropic powers and so forth. How did their image as, uh, exegetes as, uh, producers of doctrinal commentaries, how did that particular image of them function to render China an ideal place for Buddhist practice and flourishing? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, so I guess, I guess, yeah, the basic argument there in the chapter is that the the Indian patriarchs come to be seen as providing uh, models of scholarship that that and models of doctrinal authorship that that are localized in the in the Chinese context, right? So the you know the the the, the patriarchs' treatises are here now in China, um, so no need to go back to India. Um, the, the patriarchs' models of how to elucidate the Dharma in doctrinal discourse, those models of, schol- of scholarly production, are now here in China. So, so no need to go back, you know, to the Indian heartland anymore. In fact, now China is the heartland. China is the land where the bodhisattvas dwell. China mm-hmm. is the land where relics have been distributed all across the land, and where emperors are themselves Buddhas incarnate. Um, you know, and and so. I, I see the um, the representations of the patriarchs and their writings and their models of scholarship then fitting into this broader context of all, all these ways in which Chinese Buddhist authors and um, Chinese imperial patrons are attempting to make then Buddhism as the you know the, the, the center or China as the center of Buddhist civilization. Sure. Um, and yeah, and, there's, and then yeah, three specific ways. Um, you know, I won't go into too much depth here, but that um, that that occurs is right through um, through Guanding's writings where he. What I'm basically arguing there is that he's equating um, uh, his master, Juri, with Nargajana. You know, he's basically saying that Juri is the Chinese Nargajana. Juri's uh, magnum opus, the, the great calming and contemplation, is the Chinese version of Nargajana's great perfection of wisdom treatise. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, that Nargajana, that they don't rely on Nargajana as a, as a teacher. They don't rely on... Um, uh, the, the the great perfection of wisdom treatise as a as a requisite instructional guide. They use those um, as um, analogous to um, Jury's person and works, uh, for example. So it, it, a way a way in which the Indian patriarchs and Argajan in particular are used to make um, Jury now um, the center of Buddhist enlightenment here in China. Um, and then similar similar I think um, operations are at work in the use of uh, Ashvagosha with his um, um, you know the, the the most famous Chinese treatise associated with him the awakening of faith mm-hmm. uh, similarly you know that, that the this great encapsulation of all Buddhist truth is now here in China ready you know ready at our disposal no need to go back to India for anything further right um, and, and that and that model of doctrinal exegesis then can be followed by local Chinese masters themselves, you know, who can thereby, you know, kind of perpetuate the truth of Buddhism locally. Mm. Um, and then Shenzong, um, you know, the, the last example that's discussed in this chapter, um, you know, of course, his project is famous for, you know, by and large being all about, you know, here I'm going to make one final trip to India, bring everything back, and then we'll have it and we're done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, the final, you know, the best translations will be made, um, you know, I, I trained under the greatest masters of the greatest Buddhist institute in Nalanda. And, you know, so now um, through the figure of Shenzong, all of real Indian Buddhism will be transplanted to China. Yeah. And that includes then in, in, in his uh, Shiji, 
you know, the records of the Western regions. That mm-hmm. includes all of these accounts of, of these Indian masters, which are, which are interestingly and markedly different from everything that had come before in China. Um, so then I read that as an attempt to say, you know, like, well, now we've got the real, <laughs> um, and so that's all we need. We don't need to go any further or mm-hmm. back, into, back into India again. Great. So, um, so these uh, chapters that we just discussed, one through three, outline the transformations in the way in which Chinese understood uh, these three Indian patriarchs and, you know, what the implications of changing views of the patriarchs are, uh, were or are for uh, Chinese understandings of China's relationship to India. And also, um, uh, and you also use that transformation image. Trans, uh, transforming image to explore the process by which Chinese Buddhists became increasingly confident as they made Buddhism their own. Now, chapters in chapters four and six, you turn to some characteristics and functions that Ashvagosha, Nagarjuna, and Aryadeva acquired, uh, characteristics and functions that they didn't necessarily all share, but which rendered each one useful and recognizable to Chinese at both uh, elite and popular levels. So, Nagarjuna is the ch- focus of chapter four, and you um, and I think we'll skip that in the interest of time. That's where you uh, talk about Nagarjuna in the Pure Land tradition, um, Nagarjuna as a sort of uh, spell worker, and also about uh, Nagarjuna um, as uh, as an alchemist. So, but I did want to um, I wanted to just go ahead to chapter five, which was uh, one of my personal favorites. Um, and this is in which you, and chapter five is, is the one in which you look at Ashvagosha's role um, as a silk, as a Indian god of silkworms in sericulture. Right. And one of the dynamics you look at in this chapter, um, and you also look at this in chapter four and chapter six, is the way in which the deification of these patriarchs exhibits continuity with previous images uh, of these patriarchs found in hagiographic and exegetical literature. So. Right. It seems you're suggesting that other scholars have, um, well, maybe you could talk about that, how other scholars have actually argued that there were two Ashvagoshas, and you're arguing that, uh, no, in fact, uh, the scholarly Ashvagosha and Ashvagosha as silkworm deity, these are uh, these were images that um, appealed to both elite and popular levels. Right, right. Well, I... I I'm not sure exactly how the or, or what is the logic behind the uh, disjuncture that's posited between Ashvagosha as a you know an elite patriarch, um, an author of treatises and, and counselor to kings, between that image of Ashvagosha and the image of Ashvagosha as a silkworm god. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, it just of course it's it's eminently rational uh, for us to say. That these can't be the two; they can't be the same thing. <laughs> I mean, clearly, it can't be that a guy who wrote a text um, in you know the first century in India is also this god of uh, silk. Yes, um, I mean it just it's sort of intuitively, you know, of course. And I think, and I assume that's behind the um, the first the uh, source in which I've seen this distinction posited, and that, that's um, this. Is, I think the first one is in Mochizuki's, um, you know, the, the Big Buddhist Encyclopedia. Yes. Um, where he, you know, he's got two separate entries for Ashvagosha. You know, there's mm-hmm. Ashvagosha, the, the patriarch, and then there's Ashvagosha, the, the silkworm god, which is basically like made up by illiterate peasants mm-hmm. in Suzuki's um, estimation. Um, so the the uh, you write this this it, this 
split along social lines, elite and popular, then is mapped onto our uh, these two representations of Ashvagosha as uh, patriarch versus silkworm god. And yeah, so the the, the sources that I'm that I'm looking at um, indicate to me that it's both that that, um, that 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 Chinese authors seem to be of the mind that makes perfect sense that a guy who uh, counseled kings and wrote treatises could also have long ago turned himself into a silkworm and uh, saved uh, naked horse people and therefore mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, functions as a god of, of silk. Yeah. Um, so, it, so, sorry to interrupt. So um, if I could just bring us, um, that's a good point to bring us actually back to silk. Um, so I was wondering if you could just explain how it was that Ashvagosha came to be a silkworm deity. Well, so there's there's clearly a little bit of speculation involved in this part of the argument too, but it's um, it seems to me logical. Uh, there's a certain kind of con- confluence of um, ideas and sources that I that I saw as looking into it. Um, you know, the basic the basic idea is that uh, from from ancient times in China, um, there seems to have been uh, an equivalence drawn or an analogy drawn. Uh, I guess cosmologically, astrologically, mm-hmm. uh, metaphysically perhaps, between, between horses and silkworms. Um, and, and this is the, uh, I guess, the part that isn't uh, readily known. Um, in ancient China, for various reasons, the silkworm and the horse were seen to share the same kind of chi or the same sort of essence. Um, there are various stories behind this regarding, uh, let's see, how does it go? It's, it's an astrological kind of argument for one that during the silkworm season, uh, when the silkworm season begins, there's a particular um, um, uh, constellation that's at its apex in the night sky during that month. And this particular constellation is termed the heavenly team of four horses. Uh, so the horses are flying overhead at the night, the time when the, the sericultural season begins. Um, there are arguments in ancient sources like Shunzi, or discussions anyway, about how the uh, the silkworm and the horse are seen to kind of look like each other. They kind of bob their head in the same way. Um, anyway, so there's in various ways, there seem to be, in, from ancient times in China, this connection between horses and silkworms. Mm. Um, and then so it, it happens to be as well that... Um, uh, Ashvagosha's name uh, literally means uh, something like horse nay. Um, and so from, from early times in China and, and in his, er, his, his early hagiographies, um, he's variously associated with horses in, in some way or another as hagiographies. His name, of course, means the neighing horse. And, and his name is, um, interestingly, it's always translated, at least not always, but almost always, it's translated into Chinese directly as ma ming, um, mm-hmm. horse Rather than being transliterated into strings of you know other um, nonsensical syllables, as a lot of Indian names were. Yes. So so right, just the, so that kind of linguistic, you know, the, the fact that you know you see his name and his name says horse, and so he's associated with horses. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and so um, there are also, I guess, another another story that comes into play is the record of the silkworm horse from high antiquity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is uh, you know early medieval. Uh, at least in our versions of that we've got early medieval texts. And, and this this text also draws this connection between silkworms and horses in a, in a way that really starts, that really um, seems to, um, what's the word? It's analogous anyway to how Ashvagosha later becomes uh, depicted as the silkworm 
sort of figure in his uh, Baolin drawn hagiography or the record of the Baolin temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, early 9th century hagiography that describes this kind of bodily metamorphosis of Ashvagosha in the trees and into a, uh, into, into a silkworm. Um, so anyway, yeah. I, it's, it's, it's speculation based on a few sources that seem to indicate how because he's horse connected, then he gets drawn to this Chinese matrix of connections between horses and silkworms. Yes. Could could you just briefly say that one of the th- one of the things I found most interesting about this chapter is the way in which uh, the stories that you discuss the uh, the myth maybe we'd call them from the record of the silk from the uh, record of the silkworm horse from high antiquity preserved in uh, a fourth century redaction and um, also this uh, tradition of Baolin a ninth century work uh, you talk about how the stories in there. Um, allow Buddhist um, um, justification of silkworm murder because obviously, the, as you mentioned, as you discussed, there was uh, vehement sort of uh, criticism of uh, sericulture because you know you have to murder silkworms by previous right. Buddhists. But through these stories, um, uh, the silkworms come to be seen as <laughs> bodhisattvas who are consciously giving up their lives in order to clothe people. Could you? Just kind of explain how that happens. Yeah, I mean, I, I see this as being one of the uh, the major concerns that that would have um, uh, occupied, preoccupied Chinese Buddhists throughout throughout um, well throughout their history, really. And, and this is um, this is um, I, I think maybe you'll ask about this later. But one of my next uh, research projects concerns the relationship between Buddhism and, and the sericulture industry in China, oh, right. silk production industry. Uh, but yeah, so one of the major problems, of course, is that silk production. Um, typically requires the murder of millions of little silkworms. Um, you know, they're they're typically uh, uh, boiled or or steamed or or whatever to kill the little pupa inside of the um, the, the cocoon, um, such that when it such that it doesn't break out of the cocoon and destroy the silk. The silk kind of has to all be un, unwound in a single thread for it to be useful. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, killing lots of silkworms was was required for the silk industry, and then you have you know Buddhists kind of living in the land of silk. I mean, silk's just everywhere. Um, you know, it's 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 money. There's um, um, sericulture production is everywhere. It's a major basis for trade, diplomatic relations. It's a major um, uh, commodity that's uh, donated to the sangha, to, to monastic communities. Silk is just everywhere in China, and and um, of course, and it's it is a murderous enterprise. And you see a lot of sources in medieval China where they this very complaint is made. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what do you what do you do about that as a as a Buddhist in, in medieval China? And you can't, you know, obviously you can't you can't. Though some do, I think the over, overwhelming response from the Buddhist institution could not be uh, one of railing against sericulture. It's just it's it's just everywhere, deeply ingrained in Chinese culture. Yes. So then, so then I see this potentially as one kind of Buddhist response to that problem, um, which is to uh, you know, as, as you said, to to make make. Silkworms, different kinds of creatures, and therefore make their killing a different kind of act. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so right, they are in this context um, great, compassionate bodhisattvas themselves, gladly giving up their lives for the salvation of others. And so, the killing of them then is not, you know, this wanton murder, but it's um, enabling bodhisattva vows. So it's a certain kind of a, you know, on the basis of Mahayana ethics, uh, upaya and such, it's a certain kind of Buddhist justification for silk production, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, I, this is 
really my interpretation of the the the, the, ha- the hagiography of Ashvagosha in the, in the Baolin Juan. Um, and so it's speculative too. I, I don't know that 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 hagiography was necessarily interpreted as such, but yes, uh, it does lend itself to that, and it does definitely depict Ash- uh, Silkworms as great little bodhisattvas. Yes, um, which which would seem to have diff- important implications for uh, what it meant to kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, then I guess the next the next step of the argument is is similar to what I was describing from the earlier chapters, but now now it depicts. This text now depicts sericulture um, as having been invented in ancient India long before Buddhism's, you know, this is uh, like Ashtagosha's past life. So it doesn't give you a real clear timeline, but long mm-hmm. ago, mm-hmm. Um, you know, silk, silk production was invented by a great bodhisattva in India. So it, you know, it renders the entire sericulture enterprise Indian Buddhist. Mm. Um, so then I, you know, I, I kind of, I work to interpret that uh, similarly in a kind of a socio-political way um, of increasing patronage uh, for Buddhist institutions, providing um, a certain kind of sovereignty over the Buddhist of the Buddhist institution for the Buddhist institution over silk, silkworm, silk production, um, and and then especially in the uh, the ritual arena or the religious ritual uh, divine dimensions of the silk industry, which were long-standing ancient in China, silk production always required the use of deities and rituals rights to ensure healthy silkworms and abundant crops. Um, it always did everywhere from, from ancient times in China. And so mm-hmm. I see this as a way for Buddhists to kind of like, you know, it's an entree uh, for the, for the Buddhist institution, for Buddhist deities, for Buddhist rituals in this world of uh, sericulture religion. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah. Well, th- thanks for that. Um, so we, uh, we're getting near the end um, of the interview. So, um, but I want to mention to listeners that we, as besides not covering chapter four, there's also an extremely interesting uh, chapter six in which you um, sort of tie some of the um, arguments that you've made throughout the book together and make some further arguments about the way in which these three Indian patriarchs were able to um, bridge the divide between sort of um, ancient India and Latter-day China. And you also uh, just address a question that some re- listeners or readers might have, which is, well, you know, how did these three Indian Buddhist patriarchs differ from other Indian holy figures uh, who are, you know, coming into um, China with Buddhists such as celestial bodhisattvas and arhats and whatnot. But um, I should. Uh, I should. I also want to note for the listeners that the book also contains three appendices and also the Chinese characters in the text itself, which was uh, very helpful. And also, it's footnotes, not endnotes, um, which is very nice. Um, so, we've taken a lot of your time, but as a final question, I just wanted to ask if there's something that you're working on at the moment. You alluded to this. Um, you referred to the silkworm project uh, a bit earlier. Right, right. Yeah, so the, the next research project that I'm trying to develop, ho- hopefully as a second book, uh, is right the relationships between the, uh, the Buddhist institution and, and the Chinese silk industry. Um, in, in, you know, sort of broader, against the backdrop of broader Chinese conceptions of uh, uh, sericulture and civilization, um, you know, the silk being kind of a, a fundamental gift for all of humanity by the ancient sage kings and and the silkworm being valued as such, you know, as providing this great commodity that um, you know provides really the one of the foundations for human life. 
um, as a lot of ancient Chinese sources will depict the industry and, you know, the whole pantheon of uh, very important um, silk gods and goddesses and founding figures and so on. It's sort of a very central and important aspect of Chinese civilization, society, uh, and, and philosophy. Hmm. Um, and then, so how, you know, then how, did, how does the Buddhist institution um, relate to this? You know, so to me, it seems to be one of the one important question. These two, two monoliths, really, of Chinese industry and of Chinese religion, and how do they relate to one another um, in various ways, ritually and, and philosophically, doctrinally, um, socially, politically, uh, and, and economically, especially. So these are these are this is the, the broad topic and some of the dimensions that I'm trying to get at concerning it. Um, is, yeah, what I'm working on next. Oh, great. We'll look forward to that. So, um, well, that is going to be it for today. So I just want to thank you again so much for speaking with me. And I also wanted to thank our listeners for tuning in. Um, that's it for today's new books in Buddhist studies. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>